and welcome to Handbags and Glad Rags with me, Rian E. Jones. And me, Ellie Davis. Today we're discussing marriage and the politics and cultural politics of marriage. We're also going to think about the enduring appeal of representations of marriage and what they teach us about politics and power more generally. Joining us on the show, we have Alison Garden and Josephine Grahl. Alison is a researcher at Queen's University Belfast, where she's working on a social and cultural history of mixed marriage or love across the divide in modern Ireland. And she writes on the cultural politics of love and relationships more generally. Josephine is a trade unionist, writer and activist from East London. And her interests include karaoke, gardening and complaining about the Labour Party. So welcome both of you. Thank you for joining us. And over to you then, Ali. Thanks, Rianne. And um, yes, thanks, Alison and Josephine, for joining us in this discussion today. Firstly... Uh, I kind of wanted to start by pointing out that all the people participating in this discussion are not married. We all have different feelings about the institution, but we're having this discussion because despite not participating in the institution directly, all of our lives are shaped by it in different ways, whether that be the weddings we're invited to with their often eye-watering expense or the benefits of being married, tax breaks, the, the status attached to marriage and so on that we're excluded from. It feels like anti-marriage feminism is slightly out of fashion these days, but there's a long history of critique of the institution, of course. Feminist and queer critics of marriage have long argued that it is a pernicious way for the state to regulate gender, race and sexuality, that it descends from women's status as the private property of a man, and that it validates a particularly narrow, individualised and heteronormative model of relationship. Most leftists will be familiar with Engel's critique of marriage, private property and the state in which, quote, monogamous marriage comes on the scene as the subjugation of the one sex by the other, as the proclamation of a conflict between the sexes unknown throughout the whole previous historic period. Early 20th century revolutionary thinker Alexandra Kollontai viewed marriage and traditional families as legacies of the oppressive property rights based egoist past. Like the state, the family unit would wither away once the second stage of communism became a reality. Under communism, childcare would be a social responsibility rather than an individual one in practical terms, while the bond between parents and children would be left intact. The nuclear family would be replaced by a collective family. This has been instrumental in the creation of many things modern mothers take for granted, although they're increasingly being eroded state childcare provision, public education and maternity leave. So I'm just going to pause there and get your thoughts. Firstly, this idea of perhaps that anti-marriage feminism is slightly out of fashion at the moment and the kind of history of of anti-marriage ideas, anti-marriage critiques. Let me open up the discussion to our guests. Josephine, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm not married. And I think that one of the things I think is interesting about the way that marriage has changed or the idea of marriage has changed among progressive and left-wing people is that this critique, it seems, just seems to have fallen away. And I often wonder whether that's also connected to the changing kind of respectability of some aspects of queer politics. I Has gay marriage kind of rehabilitated straight marriage? Because, it, I mean, that also used to be a thing that gay liberation wasn't necessarily pursuing absolute parity of, of um, kind of lifestyle with heterosexual couples. And that, it seems to me, was a period, say, late 70s, early 80s, where the idea that not everyone would, was straight also gave rise to like lots of ideas like that the nuclear family and that marriage were not necessarily ways that people wanted to live their lives. And as we got civil partnership and then gay marriage brought in by the Tories, of course. Those kind of possibilities seem to have fallen away. The idea that there are other ways of living, other ways of doing things, they seem to have been lost in that. I think that's that's definitely part of the way that views of marriage have changed among people who would consider themselves to be radical, I suppose. I certainly feel anecdotally that like lots of people who if they were in my mother's generation, probably wouldn't be married. And of my generation, they are married. And I think that's a really interesting thing. I certainly feel that that, that marriage, that idea that people well, wouldn't necessarily expect to get married are getting married, definitely. I think we're probably all of a, of a similar generation, but certainly growing up in the 90s, I didn't experience 
a certain social or cultural pressure that I, I think younger generation do it, which is, is kind of odd because I don't think, I mean, the 90s were quite reactionary in many ways, though they had this radical veneer. But I remember there being maybe a holdover from 60s and 70s feminist ideas that you could live your life perfectly well without being part of a nuclear family without being part of a, a marriage unit and those ideas of alternative living arrangements that might still include, you know, romantic partnership or childcare uh, education. Those ideas of, uh, I guess, social reproduction outside the nuclear family were still things that seemed possible. They didn't seem like a cranky ways to live your life. They were things that were just an alternative that you might you might explore. Being a Marxist materialist, I'm thinking, is it something to do with how unstable things seem at the moment? Are people moving back towards traditional forms of social structures because they just want security and they know this is somehow, this is something that's meant to be, this is something that's very familiar, so it makes them feel secure were times when um, most things feel very precarious and quite anxiety making yeah that's um that's definitely that idea of precarity driving people back into more sort of potentially socially conservative forms of living definitely feels like it might have something to do with what we're seeing or what we're, we're kind of sensing among our social groups um there's also that the kind of influence of liberal feminism as well, I think, has, has something, uh, the liberal feminism of choice, that kind of idea that was satirised by that brilliant Onion piece, which was women now empowered by everything they do. I think that was the headline. The, this kind of ties in with the pervasiveness of love and romance in the heteronormative sense. So, you know, the quest to find the one and the idea that if you're alone or unmarried, then you're somehow incomplete and you haven't met the right person. And it feels like those those ideas are you know as prevalent as ever in some ways Alison do you have any thoughts on that um yes I do that was really interesting actually what you were saying Rianne about the fact that because things are a bit more unstable now people might be turning to marriage as a form of stability because one of the things that I really can't get my head around is the outrageous expense associated with weddings and why perfectly rational and often feminist people want to spend 30 grand getting getting married that that's just crazy to me and I think what you were saying there earlier about the uh kind of rise of liberal feminism I just think perhaps as we get further and further into our capitalist society people are just getting more and more attached to this idea of throwing money at one day I think on the point of liberal feminism as well, there's also this kind of idea that, oh, we've we've settled that. We've we've done marriage. We've we've been through that. You know, our, our mother's generation thought thought about marriage and they've they've sorted out all the problems. You know, a husband can't legally rape his wife anymore. So, you know, let's draw a line under it. It's all about personal choice now. And, you know, that doesn't actually address a lot of the things that can be really oppressive and repressive about the nuclear family. And it means that it just boils down to, well, do you want a wedding or do you not want a wedding? Which I think is not really a very interesting question. What's more interesting is, what does marriage actually mean? I mean, in an era where a lot of people aren't getting married, where divorce is still really high, where religious belief is falling, what's still the appeal of going through a state-sanctioned or a religious ceremony to make that kind of formalised commitment? That seems to me to be a question that just has been swept away. Yeah, and I mean, on that, I wonder, I've been kind of speculating on some of these questions, and I I wonder, like, because anti-marriage arguments gained a lot of traction in the sort of second wavers, you know, such as Jermaine Greer and Andrew Jorkin and Kate Millett. And, you know, they furthered these arguments that, that marriage was based on the ownership and subjugation of women and that, and that it promoted these limiting, constrictive and oppressive forms of social organisation. I wonder whether some of the discrediting of these arguments is to do with the discrediting of certain aspects of the second wave in general as well, like... This idea that, you know, people like Greer, who've obviously become known for their sort of hateful trans-exclusionary politics, and also whether there's some tension sometimes or perceived tension between those ideas and the kind of sex-positive feminism that, you know, where where pleasure, sexual pleasure and all of those things. Now, I mean, I, I don't I don't perceive that to be a tension at all, but I feel like sometimes those those ideas, those anti-marriage ideas of... Um, the people of the second wave um, can kind of get 
get bound up in those sorts of those sorts of conflicts. Sort of going back to Josephine's point on and, and Alison's point on like the the idea of, of the wedding, I think as as distinct from marriage, the idea of, of wedding as spectacle, I think is is a question that's almost removed from do you want to marry is almost a separate question from do you want a wedding in some ways. Um a lot of the the positive aspects, I guess, of, of marriage, like romantic companionship, sex, pleasure, solidarity, like interpersonal solidarity commitment can be had outside of the marriage unit but is is there sort of more more pressure now or more people leaning towards the idea of the wedding to like physically symbolize all of this like it's not something so we're in quite a performative age I think so is is it that we want this to be performed so that everyone knows about it rather than just ourselves and our partner I uh, liked what you were saying about the performative age because part of me wonders whether people are more keen to invest in the the wedding both financially and emotionally because they can put it on their social media Ellie and I have spoken at great length about the number of women and men we know who would have a picture of themselves and their bride or groom in a professional setting you know their twitter picture or something like that and the idea that having this high stakes wedding somehow gives you so much more status and yeah and I think there's that sort of um that sense of look at me I'm doing you know particularly men do this you know with their with their couple selfies or their wedding photos you know um as their profile pictures or whatever like this idea that look I'm a normal guy I'm you know like the sort of uh instrumentalizing of their relationships and their families uh to perform some aspect of kind of normative masculinity or normative relationships that does definitely kind of translate I think it does translate into sort of promotion and things like that doesn't it like once you get married and like it is proven that that men kind of benefit materially from being married not just in the obvious ways they do yes they tend to get promotions they get higher salaries and the advantage is increased if you're white too if you're a white married man you do better than a black married man for example but also they get wage increases with when they have children and for subsequent children as well whereas obviously for women they marriage has no impact on their uh, salary and they are likely to earn less than their non-married peers because they're more likely to give up positions career positions to follow their husbands but also when they start having children if they start having children that's associated with a salary decrease too so you're absolutely right there's real like tangible material benefits to being a married man that just don't translate for their non-married peers. I find those statistics, which to be honest, like I only became aware recently of the, the extent of the disadvantage for, for married women, but they have been part of the reason why marriage has just like never, as a purely cynical cost-benefit analysis, like it's never really um, appeals to me. Like just on first principles, I've always thought, well, okay, why actually marry as opposed to having a, a romantic relationship is that because you're supposed to socially and culturally or you're expected to because you're meant to economically sustain and emotionally sustain patriarchal capitalism like if so that's a lot of work and it's hard to imagine um getting enough benefit out of it to make it worthwhile purely on a personal basis before you start looking at you know the social the physical the financial negative impact that it has on women that's basically the big question isn't it is is why are women agreeing to this okay i can see what's in it for the men Right. But I think there was there was some great research done maybe a couple of years ago by a guy whose name I'm trying to remember, who came away saying unmarried and childless women are the happiest subgroup of all people. And that's basically because they just have to look after themselves. And I think the next category is married men because they have a wife to look after them (laughs) and perform all those acts of social reproduction and, you know, ensuring that their husband is looked after, their children are looked after, which is a lot of work, obviously. That seems to me to be a question that is just never there. It's like, why do we never talk about the fact that single women are much happier and Married women, I think, are the least happy of all. What's in it for women? (laughs) 
you know, I think I would be less anti-marriage if there was not such a kind of cultural hegemony around it. And also this sense that when someone announces their impending marriage or their desire to get married or whatever, you cannot, you're just not allowed to problematize it. You're not allowed to discuss and say, oh, that's interesting. Why did you decide that? The only acceptable response is kind of unadulterated joy. And I think that's one of the things that I really find so troubling about marriage is that we're not being discussed. And those questions that you bring up, Josephine, like to, to ask, to, to raise those questions with your women friends who are getting married you know it feels like it would sometimes it'd be like deeply offensive to them to this somehow sacrosanct kind of operation that they're undertaking oh totally can you imagine someone says to you i'm getting married and instead of saying oh that's congratulations i know you're going to be very happy you say why what are you doing i think i did actually do that to someone once like someone i didn't even know very well and they were just like what the hell and i remember thinking okay yeah don't don't do that again yeah, I reacted recently to someone announcing it. And it was, I, I realised afterwards I was treating it as though they told me that they were terminally ill or something. <laughs> and then I, I felt, obviously, I, I felt dreadful immediately. And then I thought, well, no, I, I kind of, <laughs> you know, my, my immediate response is, is surprise and concern. The thing that always strikes me about people announcing engagements or announcing upcoming weddings is that everyone treats it like it's some sort of achievement. Like, Getting and the, and the way that we talk about getting engaged, women getting engaged, you know, they wait for their man to ask them. It's very infantilizing. But this idea, oh, well done, you, you finally convinced someone to marry you. And of course, you know, getting married is a milestone if that if that's something that you want for your life or it's, it's an important event. But it's not an achievement. Like writing a book is an achievement. Traveling the world is an achievement. Getting your dream job is an achievement. Getting someone to marry you is not an achievement. Well, I suppose for some people it, it is. I mean, it's a straight, it's it come to kind of symbolise some, yeah, huge milestone in people's, in people's lives. But you're right. It's just a thing that's, that's going to happen, you know? It's like an, an achievement, a marker. You're so right of, of being normal. Well done, you. You've proved to the world that you're normal. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And the way that the way that men kind of take part in these discussions, it's, it's often the woman who's given the job of the announcement or the kind of the, the big sentimental kind of post about it. And the man will kind of be in the background sort of observing and almost saying, yes, I gave them what they want, as if they have no agency or participation in this at all. You know, I think that's the, the discourse around proposals engagement weddings I, I find really really troubling in that in that it's sense. really weird but there's also that she said yes oh you know, the proposal oh, the, I hate the proposal that. by the man to the woman where what's he doing is he asking or is he offering you know she said yes always seems to be, to be a really really weird thing to say about someone you're supposed to be in a, a relationship of equals with right I love the moment in Queer Eye where all the American guys are like, to, you know, some of them are married. They're all gay, but some of them are married and they're talking about engagements and proposals. And they turn to the British guy and say, did you have a proposal? And he's like, oh, no, we just we decided we were going to get married. We had a conversation about it. And they're all horrified that he hadn't had this big romantic proposal moment. And I just thought, God, that's that's so much better than the alternative you know yeah and I mean proposals have, have taken on a sort of almost wedding like status in themselves haven't they like people plan out where it's going to be and the perfect location and all of this and it just seems completely mad to me that stuff totally mad as you say like okay sure if you decide you're going to do it how about having a kind of grown-up conversation about what do you think about this you know I have to say that is what my parents did my mum likes to tell everyone they never got engaged they just decided they were going to get married and then four months later they got married so she doesn't have an engagement ring and she's very you know she's very proud of this because she's like engagement rings are an American invention and they are they're a horrible capitalist invention there's nothing nothing more capitalist than the diamond engagement ring and and another terrible Facebook or social media update to go along with the she said yes is hashtag boy done good (laughs) 
I guess this kind of highlights, I'm not, I've been sort of racking my brain to think like, yeah, what, what does a woman get out of marriage? Um, and I, I guess financial security is one thing or possibly, I don't know, social status, social protection. But these things are only available from men to women because we live under patriarchal capitalism. So like even trying to think about what ways it would benefit a woman just points up sort of inherent inequalities and gender dynamics. And that's obviously that's also very like class based as well. There is this material question, which is simply practical of maybe the last sort of 10 years where everything has become so much more insecure and you know we have a housing crisis and in lots of places in Britain obviously it's unaffordable to live in any kind of independent way unless you're in a a partnership a romantic partnership with someone else that I think must be a contributing factor and you know for example if it's so much easier for either partner to have a career where you know you're freelance or you're insecure or you're you know don't have a secure income but you're doing something that you're you love or it's part of your ambition if you are also in a codependent partnership with someone who does have a secure job so I think that's got that must be an element in in this the question of whether you genuinely do get material security is is a a different matter because obviously things don't always work out and even in marriages you can still end up not feeling quite as secure as you'd like to but I think probably that's got to be something something to do with the way people perceive relationships when um in the 70s when the you know second wave feminists were talking about this we were moving from a situation where a single wage earner could pay for a family in in a reasonable job obviously not all jobs were like that now we're in a situation where a family is often expected to have two incomes right and and it's quite different it would be quite difficult for most people to live off a single income unless it's a really really high one yeah that's really true and that kind of makes me think about you know that there are obvious benefits you know I've alluded to them briefly at the beginning that you know you get when you marry some of them are to do with tax and you know these formal kind of things that you gain access to but also yeah as you say like the cost of living and and sharing sharing those between with your partner or emotional support things like that but it seems like we need to problematize this idea that you have to get those things from one person and you know people the fact that people who would otherwise perhaps be you know quite sympathetic to anti-marriage arguments are saying well no I have to get married because of this or because of that you know immigration things like immigration stability in in other forms come into you know people's reasons for marrying and they're they're completely understandable of course but it it feels like we need to do more to think about alternatives to that and think and and say that actually that isn't right that people have to get married to you know to gain status or to gain the, their citizenship rights or whatever and it, and we need to kind of spend a bit more energy on thinking about other ways of organizing our relationships and our our households and i think this really needs to be i mean personally it's it's something i just think the left is just you know hasn't done enough thinking or talking about recently and it's really quite urgent I think. Yeah I think it also highlights the idea of the wedding and marriage as being like a fairy tale which is a trope that's very divorced from material reality so the, the idea of, of marriage as a social or financial necessity is completely hidden um, even though the, so the origin of, of marriage in Western Europe was essentially a property transaction between bourgeois families. I think we were talking about the royal wedding as well as like an outstanding example of this even though ruling class marriages especially are all to do with breeding with with sort of ensuring the um the protection of an heir and the the protection of a bloodline etc so it's very very cynical purposes they're just covered over with this sheen of uh, wedding dresses and cake they go together don't they I, I mean I think that um people don't want to feel that they are being pushed into marriage as a necessity or that they're choosing romantic pairing because of practical and material security that that might offer or the advantages at least in being able to live in a particular way you don't I don't think that's that I don't think that's a comfortable thought that you know you you see partnership as a way to for example as a route to being able to live independently I think that's not a comfortable thought in this day and age because going back to the idea that we kind of want to think that the question of marriage has all been dealt with and that's just a we don't but you know there's one kind of wants to 
imagine that we've dealt with marriage. We don't need to be constantly banging on about marriage like Mm -hmm. feminists in the 60s and 70s were. And so I think the rise of big, lavish wedding and the idea that this is an incredibly romantic moment goes along with, I think, the fact that marriage becomes more of a necessity for a lot of people. I mean, Ellie mentions immigration as well, which I think that's obviously another very real reason where marriage could provide certain quite limited these days advantages if you want to stay in the country that you've been living and working in. Even that is extremely circumscribed these days, but um, it's really difficult to admit that something that's supposed to be about, you know, love and partnership and friendship and sex and nice things, you know, is actually band around with a lot of material needs that aren't really very romantic at all. I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's why it deserves attention. I mean, obviously, you know, we're kind of bored of the sort of cultural hegemony of the wedding and, you know, certain certain ways in which marriage is discussed. But paying attention to marriage in certain ways does it's it, it's it's a crucial way in which power operates basically you know it, it's not a it's not this romantic purely romantic thing about love and you know happily ever after it is actually about power in in lots of different ways it's about economic power sexual power gender power you know all of these different things and and I think that it's it's quite an interesting thing to talk about and think about in those terms. Yeah, I mean, going back to what Rianne was saying about royal weddings, that's that's an absolutely fantastic example, isn't it, of something which is just purely about power, politics, inheritance, money, heirs, all that sort of thing, being wrapped up in the most unbelievable kind of, I mean, these days, literally unbelievable I think always probably literally unbelievable I think people like royal weddings as a spectacle don't they like the convocation of the Pope is 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 pretty spectacular too everyone enjoys that I don't think anyone really is getting carried away with the idea of this sort of fairy tale romance I think we enjoy looking at it I don't think many people believe in it but to see the way that marriage as a dynamic works in the royal family has been extremely entertaining of the last few months, hasn't it? Where simultaneously the royal family have been briefing to the press that everything depicted in the most recent season of The Crown, namely that, you know, Charles had very little interest in Diana pretty much from day one, that this was a, a very political wedding, that she was treated appallingly by the royal family, all of those sorts of things, that the only person who seems to have gone into that wedding with their illusions intact was Diana herself, who was, of course, 19, simultaneously briefing to the press that, you know, it must be emphasised that this is all purely fiction and doesn't bear any resemblance to reality, while in the actual newspapers we see the royal family's treatment of another beautiful young woman who's married into the family. It's a crazy kind of disorienting melange of this perceived glamour and elegance and beauty with the actual down and dirty politics of how the royal family operates and what they're really interested in. I find it the royal marriage very useful template to kind of examine the, the way that power works in through marriage maybe more generally and you know in more kind of smaller scale ways I mean personally the the latest series of the crown like the Thatcher stuff is absolutely awful but, but the um the Charles and Diana portrayal I found extremely kind of affecting actually
think it's really interesting. We've been using the word fairy tale a lot to talk about romance. And even the, the main, the, I think it's the third episode of The Crown, where it's about the, the courtship and then the marriage is called fairy tale. When actually our contemporary understanding of fairy tales are incredibly sanitized because historically they were very violent. Women were killed. Other people were killed. Women lost their voices. Women lost their limbs. We started to sanitize them in the 19th century for children. And this also tallies with the rise of the novel and the post-industrial revolution move to the nuclear family and greater emphasis put on the middle class marriage and the middle class family. I think it's all really tied together. And if we think about Beauty and the Beast, I mean, that was originally a story about someone being forced into an arranged marriage and the sacrifices that she was going to have to make to get married to this man to, for her family. And I think we need to think about the role that narrative plays in everyone's lives because the desire for romance and companionate love is, you know, as old as humans. It's a kind of basic human need for, for most people doesn't have to take the form of a marriage and we have to think about why it became the predominant way that people choose to organize their lives and I mean I'm a literary critic and cultural historian so I have to point out that I think then the narratives that we tell about this the public narratives the cultural narratives are absolutely crucial to why we value this institution so much. I think that's a really great point but I think the word fair if we're talking about the royal family I think the word fairy tale uh, has has a lot of those meanings that you're talking about as well doesn't it because it doesn't just mean that 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 beautiful dress and the carriage on the front pages of all the newspapers but also yeah I mean you know I'm 41 I've been following Princess Diana all my life and that's also that idea of this young girl who's basically sold off to this family who are are terrifying and uh, hostile and cruel and the the life that she then has to live after that that's going back to that much darker meaning of fairy tale that you're talking about isn't it the sort of grim stories and and the original roots of of all those things but it's fascinating how it overlaps with a Disney idea of the fairy tale with the big dress and the crown and the princess and and all those wonderful things. Oh, absolutely. But on, on the topic of Disney, there's actually been a move away from romantic love and there's now more of a focus on family love and the relationships between siblings and parents. So we began talking about how it seems to be unfashionable to question marriage, but at the same time, marriage rates are are at a historic low and even Disney is no longer giving us marriages. I think we're at quite an interesting moment. That is very interesting, actually. I hadn't thought about that, that aspect of the Disney, the Disney narrative, and it's it changing. Of course, Frozen is a celebration of sisterly uh, love. Brave. Well, the Scottish one, it's called Brave, isn't it? It's the relationship between a mother and daughter. Although the mother turns into a bear. What are our favourite portrayals of, of marriage, the kind of cultural representations of it? either critical or otherwise. There's a collection of films called Wild Tales, like a dark comedy. And one of the um, the short films in it is Till Death Do Us Part, which is all about um, a wedding party where basically everything goes wrong. The bride finds out that the groom has been cheating on her, so she goes and cheats on him and they have, have sort of a verbal and physical fight and then the family get involved and then um, basically it all descends into carnage and the closing scene is the couple having really violent sex on the cake as the guests all leave. And it's brilliant. It's just this um, this sort of turbocharged gothic parody of the sort of heightened emotional investment and the spectacle that goes into weddings. And it almost becomes a celebration of like how awful and how dark marriage can be. That's the first one that leapt to mind just because I rewatched it recently. That sounds amazing. I have to, I have to look that up. I have a, an perhaps unexpected one. I don't know if any of you saw the Betty Broderick story on Netflix about the famous divorce case between Betty Broderick and her husband I can't remember what he's called but he left her for a younger woman um and in the end she kills both of them she murders both of them so it's a true crime narrative but it depicted so well the ways in which men protect each other when they treat women badly and that there is never any consequences for them I mean he does get killed so (laughs) there is some consequence but um yeah, just the way that men close ranks and protect each other. And that it illustrates so well that marriage is a patriarchal construct that works to perpetuate men in the status quo. And there's a bit where all her female friends are like, don't worry, we won't go to the wedding of the new younger wife. And then they all end up going because their husbands are going. 
and it's really good as well on divorce because she works several jobs to put him through law school um so she sacrifices herself and and works really hard but then when they divorce he manages to trick her out of all of her money so even the so-called advantage which is the financial security is denied to her because of his bad behavior that also sounds excellent (laughs) another thing that i'll be looking up well i'm going to be a a lot less uh, obscure than 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 rin and alison and this is probably something that i think of first of all when i think about depictions of marriage and that's mad men you know it starts in the office you think it's going to be about the office but it widens out and i think that shows exactly the way in which as feminism is just be your second wave feminism just beginning to get going that move from women basically being at home and expected to support their husbands and and essentially kind of be the backroom staff for their successful executive husbands to the way that even when they start to get power in, or in the workplace, it still doesn't really work out too well on the marriage front. And I don't think a single marriage in Mad Men ends well. But I, I, I just think it's just sort of brilliantly cold about what is involved in a marriage and does it over, you know, seven seasons, eight seasons, whatever, however you describe it. And that dragging out from the office drama, which is where it starts, to the wives and indeed the husbands of the people who work there is so interesting about what a marriage involves in terms of labour and support. I mean, obviously, Mad Men is all set within, you know, sort of the upper middle classes of 1960s New York. It's it's not universal, but I think it's there's so much that's really interesting about marriage and so many of the happy endings involve people not getting married yeah definitely and actually that reminds me of um because talking about it kind of beginning in the office and radiate radiating outwards of course Don's second wife is is it Megan I think it's Megan I remember watching and I can't remember I think it's the last episode of like season three or season four or something when he when Don ends up proposing to her and it's for me it's that episode is so brilliant on the absolute bullshit behind male romance and what an absolute fantasy it is because it's basically like he sees how good she is with his kids they're on holiday and 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 she's she's looking after his kids She's literally being paid to babysit, isn't she? Yes, She's the secretary and he said, I'll pay you to come and babysit them. Yeah, and yeah. then he happens and to have a ring in his pocket. And he happens it's to brilliant. have it. <laughs> exactly, it's a total accident, but it, it kind of is like, oh, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to propose. And it's, I, I watched that and I remember thinking, wow, this is it. This is it. This is like the sort of nonsense fantasy behind romance and it because it's just not romantic at all really I do yeah. need to watch um, Mad Men then it just takes me so long to get around to watching anything that's that's long and acclaimed I've only recently watched Game of Thrones I don't, I don't know if we can say anything about the portrayal of marriage in uh, in there I haven't watched Game of Thrones personally. <laughs> Game of Thrones does have quite a lot that's interesting to say about you know mm-hmm. this cod cod medieval society and women as chattel and the marriages yeah. that are also very much along those lines aren't they they're transfers of property mm. the single marriage that I can think of that happens for love actually is a total disaster for everyone concerned <laughs> on a national level as well as a personal one and another uh, really interesting tv series on marriage Ellie and I have talked about it a lot is this Sopranos and it's fascinating how it reflects how badly uh, men treat their wives but also the power that wives have in some way to men I mean uh, for, for men Tony is only really kept in his place by Carmela although it's a sort of strange ambiguous place that he's kept in but she's the only one who really pulls him up apart from his therapist of course Dr Malfi yeah it's it's also I think The Sopranos is really good on the kind of d- dynastic kind of qualities of of marriage and how it operates the so-called private sphere you know operates to bolster the power of the men operating in in public and really you know these men are nothing without their wives you know and and whenever any there's any question raised over their heterosexuality over their masculinity or anything it completely undermines their power within the mafia the sopranos is so good at showing how yeah how marriage kind of supports male power yeah because the wives have they have leverage don't they they don't really have power they have a lot of tools that they can use 
but their power is always delimited by the fact that they are married to someone who is an extremely powerful man in his own position in the mafia, who the more leverage they have over their husbands, the more compromised they are morally and legally. In a much more trivial way, that also happens in, in, in Game of Thrones, I think, that, that what you see women holding is not power, but leverage and using the tools that they have when they are status symbols, when they are political pawns. Yeah, I'd agree. And, but the, the, the power that Carmela has over Tony she only holds in so far as she's also willing to be compromised morally and 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 in the law by knowing about what he does as well yeah and I mean it's also that I mean she she's she only has that power as his wife you know and and it's that thing you know the way that cultures such as the the power of the so-called like matriarchy you know in in cultures such as Italian culture or Irish culture um uh, you know, people will, this will often be invoked. The matriarchy will often be invoked as somehow, you know, evidence that women do have power over men and all of this. And, that, you know, the point is always that only when, only when they're married, only when they are mothers, but even, and even then it's so compromised and, you know, very, very constrained. So the family offers a very limited form of power for these women, even though they do have it. And someone like Carmela obviously is, is a brilliant character and, you know, the way in which she sort of, she does leverage these things is is very fascinating to watch yeah i think leverage is a is a great way of describing it not power that's much better yeah can you think of any examples where the woman might have power <laughs> or a positive marriage any depictions of a married relationship where you think that looks good I'd like to be involved in something like that it's, I don't know if Ali has it there's a well actually there's there's quite a number of Jilly Cooper marriages say- that that are even even if they're sort of cynically depicted, then they still you can see both partners sort of managing to make it work to to both their satisfactions. But yeah, I, I don't have um, I don't have any quotes to hand. But she's often someone I turn to and go, oh, yeah, that looks nice. <laughs> I didn't I didn't manage to track down the quote, but there is a quote. I mean, but it's it's a kind of a general Jilly Cooper thing. There's a sort of wonderful pragmatism running through all her novels, which is like you know, okay, we're going to get married, but everyone's going to cheat on everyone else it doesn't really there, there's a, there's a lot of cheating and lying um involved um and so even though they're kind of romances on one level they're not it's not particularly she's not particularly ultimately that romantic about marriage even though she kind of does we do get these little fairy tale uh endings you know splashed splashed about i i really enjoy her pragmatism about it yeah i know i keep pushing the point but i think she's 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 such a fascinating person isn't she because she's she's so posh and she's such a Tory and that comes out in all her novels but also she was part of swinging London and I think she's I I don't want to slander Jilly Cooper here because I think she's she has this reputation of being just a really lovely person but I think she's written about she and her husband were also kind of unfaithful to each other and that's that happens in a marriage and you know, you make your decisions and you move on with them. And I think that's, again, connected to the fact that a generation of women older than us thought about these things in a much more clear-eyed sort of way for all the failings of, of second-wave feminism, that affairs and fancying other people and stuff doesn't stop when you get married. And if you want to make a success of your relationship, it's much better to tackle those things with honesty or at least pragmatism than than to pretend that monogamy is the the one, the only way. And as soon as you've found the one, that's it for the rest of your life. Yeah, definitely. And I I also appreciate how um important female sexual pleasure is in a marriage to Jilly Cooper. That's obviously, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a real it's 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 something that is really foregrounded in all her portrayal, portrayals of marriage and the women characters must, you know, they, they must be pleased. They must be pleasured in some way. Um, I, I love how she does that. It's always presented extremely, I don't know if casually is the word, but sort of female, female sensual pleasure and sensual engagement is something that's always just endemic to her characters. And the protagonists are never judged for this, even if they sort of, you know, react to a to a breakup by going home, drinking a bottle of vodka and eating all the cheese that's in the house and then smashing all the windows in their, their ex's house or something. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that that's an acceptable way to behave in this this circumstance. And yeah. so even this sort of negative indulgence is given some leeway and so is is positive indulgence, like the, the need for, for pleasure and for joy 
and sexual fulfillment is just something that is endemic um, to all her characters, which I really like. Is this convincing you to read Julie Cooper, Ellison? Oh, I was already convinced by you, Ellie. Yes, I'm definitely going to be reading Julie Cooper. I just need to get some. Get some. <laughs> Elena Ferrante is another one who I think is brilliant on, on these things. Um, yes. Yeah, the cruelty of men. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that women can try and kind of work within, you know, within those those kind of relationships and try and find their own subjectivity and agency and satisfaction and how kind of compromised and sorted they are really. There's actually there's there's one positive depiction of a marriage in that book and it only I think it only comes off as positive because everything else is so awful but it's uh, Lila's I can't remember if they actually marry or if they just uh, move in together and um, with Enzo who's interesting because he's always presented throughout as sort of a very macho kind of lowbrow uh, proletarian type and not one of the sort of the, the liberal intellectuals that Lenu associates with but he's actually very supportive and protective in a way that the other men around Lila are, are not they all they all want something from her and they're all quite predatory whereas he is content to kind of give her space to to be herself, to find work and to fulfill herself and find her subjectivity, which um, I always liked. Yeah, I agree. I agree. No, I was just going to bring up a really miserable depiction of a marriage, which is Revolutionary Road. I don't know if any of you have read it or seen the film, but that really depicts the drudgery of a marriage where a woman has sacrificed everything and completely and she's sort of completely effaced herself and also the extreme violence that is caused by a lack of reproductive justice and not giving women agency over their own bodies particularly in within marriage where there is often a kind of assumption that oh you're, you're more protected within marriage but I just don't think that historically that has been the case at all I mean it doesn't it wouldn't have mattered whether you're married or not you were sort of at the mercy of your body oh give me land lots of land under starry skies above don't fence me in let me ride through the wide open country that I love don't fence me in let me be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever, but I ask you please Don't fence me in, just turn me loose Let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western skies On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder Till I see the mountains rise I'm just so fascinated by women still wanting to wear a a white wedding dress and have their diamond engagement ring. And it's women and men want to pursue this when they're openly socialists, feminists, and yet they seem to have no reflexivity when it comes comes to marriage it's completely fascinating to me I think they also have to recognize that there is a falling off of marriage there is an increase in the numbers of people who have never married and this increase started in the late 70s and has gone up ever since then so whether you connect it to you know the inflow of of middle class women into the workplace and the financial independence that gives them or uh, safe and reliable contraception and 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 less situations where you're forced into marriage through kind of moral questions of not having illegitimate children it's really interesting that while the number of never married women and men goes up there is less discussion of alternatives to marriage and of of not being married and there's less questioning of what marriage means and why you would do it i think that's that's a big thing for me that the statistics are not going the way that you would imagine if you read you know if you if you follow popular culture and 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 you read stuff but no one seems to be talking about that fact and marriage you know certainly I feel culturally socially around me that marriage seems to be bigger than ever even though it's not that that I think is a really odd thing you know, I think more than more than a quarter of, of adults have never been married, including 
not just as you imagine sort of young young adults but in every age group and yet the discussions about what kind of life you're going to have if you don't marry not just if you're you know in a, a long-term romantic relationship but unmarried but if you never marry at all or you you live a, a single life or you live a life that's that's a different life you know you live with a friend or a sister or you live alone or you live in a some sort of communal way there seems to be no conversations around that and there seems to be less and less questioning of why anyone would want to get married and what the purpose of it is. I agree. I think that's a fascinating point. Uh, yeah, I hope this discussion sparks um, some further conversation or, or recognition about that point because I think it's um, it's really valuable and, and kind of urgent. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, for me, like, let's c- can we just discuss and problematise some of this stuff? I suppose that would be, you know, my kind of aim in these you know, when we talk about these things, really, as you say, Rianne has uh, been part of making that discussion happen. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I wanted to ask is how you all felt about civil partnerships, so heterosexual civil partnership. I liked the way that the, the couple, the couple who uh, took that court case, so that they were allowed to have a civil partnership, they made some quite good kind of feminist arguments against marriage in the in the case. So I thought that was. That was a kind of useful addition to the discourse. And in France, the, the French equivalent of the of the civil partnership, the Pax, is something that you can do with anyone. The fight for a heterosexual civil partnership in this country is is definitely was definitely a good thing. But in France, you can do one, you know, with your brother if you want to. And I think that is a really interesting thing because what it is basically doing there is boiling down that the rights and advantages of marriage are very material and are about ownership and property and extremely unromantic things like pensions and who's going to inherit your house or your assets and all that sort of stuff. So bring that on. Civil partnership with anyone that you choose, that would be great. I think it might, this, this will this will be very off-brand, but I think it was Norman Tebbit that argued um, like ages ago for, for the broadening of civil partnership so that it could involve like maybe two two people who'd lived together all their lives as as friends but wanted to pass on property or have tax breaks and that kind of thing like why yeah the, the idea of, of a platonic relationship that could have companionate aspects to it as well and could be recognized in law I think would be a great thing so what we're doing here is we're endorsing the views on marriage of of, of notorious Tories Jilly Cooper and Norman Tebbit. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, I actually wanted to say, I do think it's worth thinking about the kind of the radical power of marriage too in a society that has very strictly legislated who is recognised as eligible for marriage. So in the United States, where there were the, it's disgustingly termed like anti-miscegenation laws meant that, uh, you know, there couldn't be people of different races getting married in some states until 1967. And we've talked about gay marriage or same-sex marriage too and I think you know historically if you weren't the right religion you could your marriage wasn't recognized as well so there's there's an interesting sort of radical history of marriage as well I think that it's sometimes worth bringing into discussions. Yeah definitely and and also I think worth pointing out the the success of the grassroots campaigns for equal marriage that which have been led by people in the LGBTQ plus community, um, including in Ireland um, and elsewhere. And obviously this has changed people who were kind of critical of the sort of heterosexist nature of marriage. For some people, this has made them a bit more willing to participate in the institution. Although, of course, there's lots of arguments to be had then about marriage itself and the heteronormativity of it, of the, the relationship and so on. But yes, there, there is definitely an interesting kind of activism that can coalesce around marriage, which can be quite radical. Yeah, I think it goes back to discussions about who has the right to love and in which ways and what types of love do we value as a society? Yeah, well, and it's why it's, it's, and it's, why it's worth talking about and examining as an institution, right? Because I think it kind of provides clues as to, you know, as definitely. to how power operates. I completely agree that definitely the fight for gay marriage has been a positive thing. And I think I started by saying this, that in some ways, though, it, it feels as though marriage then becomes the only option, not just for straight people, but for gay people. Um, mm, and I definitely. think... Yeah. you lose kind of 
maybe some more radical ideas about other ways of living and other ways of being with people and other ways of having relationships and I think that has to also be it's complicated isn't it but that also has to be part of how we think about gay and straight marriage yeah and I mean just to bring in the inevitable covid lockdown angle those arguments are beginning to be had it felt it feels like because you know the the inefficiency of our so-called household organization has really been quite unignorable and I mean Of course, the political climate probably doesn't exist for us to kind of make these radical leaps. But there are some interesting discussions happening around this. And also, I don't know if any of you have read The Care Manifesto, which was published by Verso recently. It's a nice, really nice little book. It's not very long. It's just starting some really interesting discussions around how to organise communities that aren't exclusionary and heteronormative. That seems like a good point to end the discussion. Thank you to our guests, Josephine Grohl and Alison Garden. And join Brienne and I next time for the next episode of Handbags and Gadbags. I'm going to finish now with a romantic ballad. This is dedicated to my deep interest in the act of physical lovemaking. It's very short. It's the ballad of Barry and Frida. Don't 
say, you must excuse me. <laughs> Exempt you, want to tempt you, want to drive you mad with lust. No cautions, just contortions. Clear an avocado on me lower portion. Be mighty, be flighty, come and melt the buttons on me flame proof nighty. <laughs> 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 